Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor of the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese of Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in ethics, metaphysics, epistemology, and many other areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Jakob Hovey, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. His new book, The Predictive Mind, is just out from Oxford University Press. The prediction error minimization hypothesis is the first grand unified empirical theory about how the brain implements the mind. The hypothesis, which is as bold as it is controversial, proposes to explain the mind via one core mechanism, a process of comparing predicted sensory input with actual input, updating our hypotheses in the light of the difference, and then generating new predictions. In his new book, Hovey introduces this theory to a wider audience, develops the theory's explanation of perception, and explores its potential for explaining consciousness, attention, representation, and mental illness. In this interview, Hovey considers how the theory turns the usual view of perception on its head and addresses some of its implications for the relation between cognition and perception and for the possibility of knowledge of the external world. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Jakob Hovey. Are you with me? I'm with you, Carrie. Hi. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thank you. I am delighted to be talking to you about your new book, The Predictive Mind, um, which is just out from Oxford uh, University Press. Um, let me, uh, before we get into the actual um, meat of the book, um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you got to the topic of uh, mm-hmm. of this basic theory in neuroscience and of the mind, um, and how you, how you got to, maybe to philosophy generally, and then how you... Uh, came to write this particular book? Yeah, I mean, it's always a good question you know, to ask philosophers what made them go into philosophy. I think, you know, in my case, probably because I've always been perplexed about the world as such, never really understanding uh, much. Um, so philosophy is a natural place to go in that, in that case. Um, and I rather quickly got interested in issues pertaining to perception, perception, uh, philosophy of language, philosophy of, of mind. Um, but this particular interest in, in the philosophy of, of neuroscience started when we did some work um, almost 15 years ago on, uh, on delusions in schizophrenia, um, where I happened to share an office with Ian Gold, who's now in, in Canada. And we looked at these um, forward modeling accounts of, of delusions. And the more I looked into it, the more I discovered that it was part of a, a bigger project in terms of uh, predictive coding and uh, some computational ideas from, from machine learning that was starting to really emerge 
uh, in, in neuroscience and about a decade ago. Um, so from this work on, on delusions, I discovered that there's this really big, exciting theory um, that had great explanatory uh, power. Um, and then I moved to, um, to Denmark from, from Australia and started working with a, a sort of a motley crew of neuroscientists and anthropologists that are also getting excited about this, this theory. This group was um, in Aarhus University led by um, Andreas Röpstorff, who's this really amazing um, academic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it very quickly dawned on us that, that here we had something special um, with the whole um, prediction error minimization idea. Uh, and I guess the the idea for the book arose already around 2004 uh, when it became clear that with this theory, uh, lots of different aspects of perception could be explained. So I wanted to write the book already a decade ago, but a lot of the formal machinery is very difficult to grasp. And also there are just constantly uh, uh, being published new facets of, of the theory that really increased its explanatory reach. Um, so, so every year there's a new aspect that could be explained, uh, action, attention, and so on get, got piled on. Uh, so it's only you know, a couple of years ago that I felt that the this, this story was really so full and uh, I understood it enough uh, uh, for the book to be, to be written. So this is um, uh, the prediction error minimization hypothesis is, I mean, it's basically the first kind of broad fundamental neuroscientific theory of, of how the brain um, implements the mind. And, you know, there's a lot of formal machinery, as you mentioned, um, which is in the book is kind of uh, minimized itself, um, you know, in order to get the broader story to a wider audience and sort of see its implications and push them as far as um, explaining various aspects of the mind, um, you know, from mental illness to consciousness to attention to representation and so forth. Um, so I guess the first thing to put on the table is um, what, uh, what, what's the basic um, overview of the theory? Um, uh, you know, without we can go into the details later, but but how mm-hmm. would you characterize the theory as a whole? So the core of the theory is incredibly simple. It's that the brain is an organ that always minimizes its prediction error. And that's really as as short as as it gets. Where prediction error is the difference between its predictions about its sensory input and the actual sensory input that it gets. So the brain is only interested in on average and on the long run, minimizing that quantity. And from that then follows everything we want to say about the mind. From that follows everything about perception, about action, about attention and understanding. Okay. So that's as short as I can do it. Yeah. Um, well, so we're we're talking about a brain that it, it sort of generates hypotheses in some sense. Um, it... Um, it compares what the what those hypotheses predict. It's going we're going to sense. Uh, it compares yep. what's the incoming sensory uh, sensory data with what's expected. Generates an error term, um, and then that error term, uh, if there is one, you know, gets pushed up the the hierarchy, uh, yep. and the hypotheses are. Um, 
uh, updated in some sense. Um, and then yep. the process starts all over again, right? Exactly. So, um, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of different questions about, uh, about those different steps. Um, and maybe, maybe we can sort of go somewhat slower about each of them. Um, yep. so let's start with the, with the hypotheses. Um, you know, what, what are they? I mean, is this, is this some sort of a very rich internal model that we have the world? What, what form do they have? Um, where do they come from? Um, and how do we set the, 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 uh, the probabilities of these hypotheses? Yeah. So hypotheses, are just probability distributions with a mean and a standard deviation, and they're encoded by, you know, whatever it is that the brain does. Um, so they are basically expectations for what will happen. And in the long run, as they get tested and experienced, they will accumulate evidence and then they will start carrying information about causes in the world. So the model um, as such when you take all of the different hypotheses, it's very complex and captures the full causal structure of the world um, in terms of how individual hypotheses carry information about individual causes out in the world. So that's a that's a hypothesis. And the way they get shaped um, is that um, you know they get shaped in the in the light of prediction error. Uh, so prediction errors uh, come in, which tells us that, or tells the the brain that the hypothesis is is wrong in some sense, and the prediction are very importantly is then weighted according to the uh, how much we already know, is weighted according to the precision of the of the incoming signal, and that uh, gives a, 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 a an essentially Bayesian rule for updating the the hypothesis, and these hypotheses, you know, where do the priors come from? So. So hypotheses are basically prior probabilities in the Bayesian sense. And where do they come from? They are, they are learned over time. They are shaped over time. So it's strictly speaking, it's, um, it's an, uh, an empirical uh, Bayesian theory so that the more you use the Bayesian machinery of, um, of um, um, adjusting your hypothesis in the light of the prior probabilities and the incoming sensory evidence, how well it fits with our hypothesis, the more you do that, uh, the more you'll shape your, your priors over time. And, um, and that gives you then a, a more and more optimal estimate of the world. So it's quite important that it's, that we're talking about kind of, um, a version of, of Bayes here, which is empirical so that over time the priors are shaped. So we don't get this uh, thorny problem of, of where the priors come from and we'll, whether we set them completely subjectively. So what, um, I mean, to sort of put this in, in perhaps more intuitive terms, I mean, when, when many people think about hypotheses, you think of some sort of a proposition. Um, mm. And, you know, that's, that's not really what's going on. I mean, these are probability distributions, uh, but distributions yeah. over, over something. Um, and I guess the question is, you know, what are these probability distributions over? 
So the idea is that um, they're over all possible stimulus conditions. So they, it's the most likely cause um, of your sensory input. So they represent the most likely cause of your sensory input over all possible stimulus conditions. Um, so for, you know, if you were trying to represent a, a dog, it's the most likely um, uh, cause of your you know, dog impression over all possible uh, encounters with objects in the world. So how do yeah um, how how do the how do neurons sort of represent these these probabilities or probability distributions? So we have to assume that this happens in in terms of uh, you know uh, spike patterns and so on um, uh, by neuronal populations, um, and I don't go into the actual neuronal side of things in the book much. Um, but uh, the idea is that the mean and the standard deviation of the of these probability distributions is somehow encoded um, by the way that that neurons fire in the brain, uh, and there's quite a bit of of, of that kind of talk in uh, kind of computational neuroscience uh, textbooks. Okay. Um, when could you could you say a bit more about the about the updating? Uh, process because um, in 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 a Bayesian theory right there's there's incoming evidence you have a set of hypotheses they have their initial probabilities yeah um, and then you have the evidence and the um, the probabilities get redistributed in the light of that evidence um, yeah and yeah. Um, is it, so? Do we we just start out with the set as you put of all possible uh, possibilities uh, or probabilities of mm-hmm. what sensory input there could be? I mean, that doesn't what, and then what, select on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So, well, so the idea is that that there's a um, um, that you can actually revive. You can start with one hypothesis. Which has, which is represented by a mean and a standard deviation, and then you can update that in the light of the prediction error. So, so this, the crucial step here is that we treat probability distributions as as Gaussians or normal distributions. So we can split up mathematically the mean from the standard deviation, and once you do that, then you can have a, then you can approximate Bayes' inference in a stepwise manner. Um, and update the mean of the of the of the prior to get the, a new uh, posterior. So, so a good kind of very crude analogy here is the way we might do a running mean. So, if you've got twenty numbers, one way to do the mean is just to add them all up and divide by twenty. But another way to do it is to do it stepwise. So, you keep you you start out with a guess about what the about what the mean will be, then you get the first number in, and you you calculate the um, the error between your expectation and the first number, and then you divide you, you you divide that by one. Then you get the second number in, so so you divide by one, and then you update your previous guess in the light of that error. Then you get the second number in, um, 
and you compare that to your new updated expectation, and then you divide that difference by two and update in the light of that. So you update and divide up to you, up, up till n, which is in this case in 20 is 20. So this is a way of on a rolling basis updating the the mean and getting to you know the true mean in the end. And in essence, the same is happening in this kind of Bayesian inference that we're talking about here, where you get new samples in, and you compare that sample to what you expect, what the expected mean was, and then you update the old expected mean in a weighted way relative to what you already know. So when it's just a mathematical mean, it makes sense that you divide by n, so that you basically learn less and less as you get more and more samples in. So when you divide by 20, the error is weighted very lowly because you've already got lots of samples in that tells you pretty much what the mean is going to be. But with Bayes, of course, so in a more real-world situation, which is not about maths, you want to update it in an optimal way. Um, and older learning rules, like what's known as Reskola-Wagner learning rules, have a constant learning rate um, so that it doesn't drop like it does for the mean. But Bayes will have, will have us updated in the light of what we already know, so how certain we already are about the, the mean, which is just the standard variation about the, the prior. Mm -hmm. And then uh, also relative to how much we are learning in this particular instance, which is the standard variation about the likelihood. So once we compare these two, we get a, an optimal weight for the prediction error that tells us exactly how much we should change the expected mean to get the posterior, which will then be the new prior for the next step. So the, the, the trick here is to assume that probability distributions are Gaussian and then mathematically split out the, the variance or the precision of these from the mean. And that gives you then a, a rule a Bayesian rule for updating the hypothesis. So I know this sounds kind of technical, but it's it's the it's the way of getting around the kind of problem that you mentioned that you have to start out with all the possible hypotheses and then select the one that best fits the the sensory evidence, which is sounds like a computationally intractable uh, proposition. So instead, we start with one and we learn as we go along. Where this learning, very importantly, is based on how much we already know, and how much we're learning in this particular instance. So how, um, uh, I mean, a couple of, uh, I mean, one of the things that you, that you do in the book is to, you know, put all of this in, you know, not, uh, you know, you sort of leave the, you know, although there's a lot of this, all of this mathematical machinery is going on, it's going on in the background, and yeah. um, and so what, one question, you know, since you're explaining a bit more of that uh, now, um, what if anything? I mean, is there something essential that's getting lost in translation uh, when you you know put the mathematical machinery more in the background, or you know does uh, does the, the sort of more, um, I don't know, qualitative uh, method you've chosen to present the theory, um, does that really capture, you know, its essence without any sort of, you know, big loss in terms of the mathematics behind it? 
yeah, I mean that's always a um, that's always a, a it's a trade-off, um, and you know, so one reason for not doing all the maths is that I don't do all the maths, uh, and, I, and one of the reasons I don't do all the maths is that um, at heart the, the mathematical core of this theory is incredibly complex um, because it all comes back to basically statistical physics. And the papers in machine learning and in theoretical neuroscience on which all this is based are, you know, almost unreadable for for normal people. <laughs> so there's no real easy way to to kind of, without turning it into a, a textbook, which I couldn't write, but without turning it into a textbook, there's no easy way of of choosing a level of formal um, description that would do justice to the actual theory. Um, so, you know, I play a little bit around with just plain bays. I could have gone this step further and, and done the, the kind of rolling update, but I, instead I chose to give a kind of statistical analogy to that and say it's just like model fitting, um, you know, because in model fitting what we do is that we, um, we ref refine the parameters of the model in order to minimize the prediction error. So, so really the, the key idea here is that we know that there are methods out there, gradient descent or variational bays and so on, that allows us to do this kind of inference. Uh, but the key is that we, we do it in order to minimize the prediction error uh, or minimize the difference between the, the model that is representing the external causes of our sensory input and the samples and the sensory samples that we get in. So that's the key idea. And, you know, there's a number, you know, in machine learning, there's a number of different kind of me mathematical methods for for doing this minimization. Um, but they're actually not so important to, to grasp this central idea. So on this, um, you know, to put it also very simply, um, perceiving, you know, correct perception or, or veridical perception um, is really um, having your expectations fulfilled you know, a hundred percent or or close to that, right? Yes, you could say that. So, so the idea is that you are perceiving correctly if you minimize prediction error on average and over the long run. Right. So that's that's perception. Um, but of course, you might start out. You might have the wrong expectations in a given instance you might have the wrong expectations your priors might not be shaped sufficiently um, so that you might minimize your prediction relative to those expectations but it might be something that over the long run would increase prediction error so it's not quite you know the world has to cooperate with you mm -hmm. in order to perceive correctly uh, so it's not just you know picking a random set of, of priors and then minimize prediction error relative to that, because you can only minimize prediction error relative to that if the world co co cooperates with you. So this this is where I think you're, uh, you introduced the idea of of, um, of active inference or active perception, and where moving around uh, mm -hmm. uh, enters into the picture of what is otherwise, you know, seems to be a sort of passive perception view. Could you... Could, could you explain that element of the of the theory? Yeah, so there's this really nice seesaw between 
perceptual inference and what in the in the literature is called active inference. And the idea is that um, the, the passive element uh, that we've been talking about so far is, you know, adjusting the priors so that you're pretty certain that you have a, a decent representation of the world. But then what you do is you pick one of these hypotheses, you select a hypothesis and hold it fixed. So now you're no longer interested in updating the parameters of this particular uh, hypothesis about the world. And instead, you generate a prediction error uh, uh, on the basis of this selected hypothesis. And then you wait for your body to move around, your eyes to, to, to move around, or your body to move around in the world, or for you to change something in the world, such that this prediction error will go away. Uh, and this, of course, is, is an action, but it's also a way of accumulating more evidence for your hypothesis, but under a different direction of fit. So you get action in uh, just by changing the direction of fit around. Okay, so... Um, uh... So it, are these? Um, well, let me ju- let me just ask about the, uh, which I think you call the the second order um, mm-hmm. uh, precision. The precisions. Uh, no, there's a, there's a sense in which um, not only do you sort of take in sensory import input, sorry, and um, you know uh, generate a pr- uh, prediction and an error. Uh, you know, if they're assuming there is one. Um, but there's also, um, I don't know if you want to call it a, a hypoth- second hypothesis about whether the source of that input or, or that input, I, sh- I guess, um, itself is itself reliable. Yeah. Right. Or is, is to be trusted. You know, so there's, there's sort of two elements going on. There's, uh, you know, what is the, how does this input compare with what I've expected? And um, how much should I trust this input? Yeah. Right. Can you, so, yeah. So this is a really important part of, of, uh, of the whole framework, this idea of that our prediction and minimization is, um, is optimized in terms of the precision of the prediction errors. And it's a simple reflection of the fact that we live in a in a changing world where there are lots of causes out there that impinge on our senses, and these causes interact in various ways that create all this kind of non-linearity in our, in our sensory input. It changes all the time, uh, and we go from context to context. And in some contexts, the, the sensory input can be trusted. So if you are sitting in a nice, well-lit uh, room, uh, looking at some well-defined objects, then you're in a context where it doesn't really matter what the sensory input are, but you can trust that the sensory uh, what the sensory input are, but you can trust that the that the sensory input is is going to be trustworthy. And then you go into another context. It might be in a poorly lit room with lots of uh, ambient noise and so on, and now you can't trust the sensory input anymore. And we do this all the time in in on various timescales. We change context all the time. And this means that we don't always know if we can trust the, the sensory input. Uh, we don't always know if we can trust our estimate of how much we already know. So we need to have this second order machinery. And, and you're right, there are second order hypotheses about the world, 
but not about causes in the world, just about levels of uncertainty in the world. We constantly have to keep track of that as well so that we can optimize our updating of hypotheses in the light of prediction error. So in one context, we, we get a prediction error in, um, and if it's a context that we expect to be uncertain, we should give that prediction error a low weighting. And in another context, the same prediction error uh, might be given a high weighting because we expect that here we can trust it. Mm-hmm. So this is absolutely essential um, on the assumption that we live in a in a, uh, a noisy, uncertain, highly interactive world that gives us lots of non-linearity in our sensory input. If we lived in a world with where you know where the uh, where the uncertainty never changed from context to context, then we wouldn't need all this extra machinery. But we do, so we do need it. Okay, so um, uh, one of the um, one of the points that you that you make in the book is about how this kind of turns around our ideas about about perception. You know, rather than sort of having some sort of you know the input um, and um, uh, and then we you know act or perceive, right? We get some sort of full signal that we then process. Um, mm. The idea the idea here is that, um, no, the, the input um, is really feedback to, uh, to, the, to the hypotheses that, that, um, uh, that really generate the, the perceptions that we have. Is that? Yeah. Uh, could, you, could you explain that a bit? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really exciting aspect of um, of this whole framework that it sort of turns things upside down in the way that you just described. Um, so we have to imagine that uh, the brain, as it were, always sort of dreams at the world or fantasizes at the world. Um, so we have this this constant, ongoing set of expectations about what the world is like, which drives our experience and then we just sample so the, then we, we then we test whether that dreaming at the world or that overall hypothesis uh, about the world we we test whether that is correct by you know almost occasionally just dipping into the world and getting a little sensory sample to confirm that yes our expectations were were correct so this is you know the, the complete opposite from the kind of standard bottom-up picture where in every instance you have to extract all the information uh, from the world in order to to arrive at a perceptual estimate. Um, and I find this exciting, partly because it's it's uh, <laughs> it makes sense, uh, to me at least, uh, but also because it sort of tells us a story about the, the mind as being in a, in a space of its own. We constantly have this big internal model, which is what drives perception, um, which is somehow guided by the world, but at the same time segregated off from it. Uh, and it's a kind of uh, image that I find strangely uh, attractive and fascinating. Well, it's highly, I mean, as you just mentioned, it's, it is a very, um, rather than bottom-up, a, a very top-down um, internalist um, sort of picture, um, which may, raises a lot of, um, you know, sort of worries that I, that I do want to get to, certainly in terms of uh, the epistemology. 
um, epistemological implications. But um, more immediately, there's um, there's the question which you which you discuss at length in the book about. Um, cognitive penetrability, right? There's the, mm. the old debate about, um, you know, to what extent what we perceive depends on what we, you know, I mean, very roughly put, um, what we perceive depends on what we believe or what we know, what background knowledge we've got. And this theory seems to sort of affirm cognitive penetrability in spades. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it, it, in effect, it, it the turnaround that you just mentioned is it's it's almost like saying that cognitive penetrability gets it backwards. The the idea is more that uh, it's uh, it's sort of like a little bit of sensory penetration into the internal model. Um, That's a very nice way of putting it, actually. I um, like that. Well, in in any case, I mean, you, you I'd like. To, to, if you could discuss a bit about your discussion of cognitive penetrability um, and yeah. this massive, you know, sort of a massive, I mean, this is, let me put it this way, cognitive penetrability is usually thought of as some sort of a problem. Um, and you're, you, you seem to embrace it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. I love the, the notion of the sensory penetration, actually. And it must be right because a number of people have noticed that if we if we jump on the predictive bandwagon, then we get cognitive penetrability. So Gary Lupian has a paper out on this, and uh, Petra Feta and uh, Albert Nevin has a, a recent paper as well, arguing exactly as I do that that here we get cognitive penetrability. What I try to do in the chapter in the book is to is to be even-handed about it. So to you know to to really deal with this debate, uh, we have to. Give something clearly to cognitive penetrability because um, this just falls straight out of base, you know, because your your posterior probability uh, depends on the prior. Right? There's no way you can get around that. Um, and on the other hand, you also want to explain how we can have these cases that people like Bodo focuses on in terms of. Um, cognitive impenetrability, what, what would explain that sometimes priors don't have any influence on, uh, on our perceptual influence. Right. And in the book, I try to tell a story in terms of, of the hierarchical nature of, of hypothesis and the way that prediction error is shunted up stepwise through the, the brain, the, the hierarchical levels of the brain, um, of how we can get both things. Um, so basically, the idea is that you get cognitive penetrability uh, it, to the extent that basically a prior at a given level uh, determines the posterior. So that's uh, trivial once you buy into base. And you get cognitive impenetrability in cases where lower levels in the cortical hierarchy have already explained away all the prediction error so that the higher level expectation has no job to do. It's kind of an idle wheel. Uh, generating prediction area that it sends up higher, but it can't send down predictions further down that does any work. Um, so this kind of compartmentalization, compartmentalization uh, in terms of how prediction is shunted up and down in the in the hierarchy. So here, the hierarchy I think is really important to to explain, you know, both cognitive penetrability and cognitive impenetrability. Um, 
But I think one thing that is crucial here is this idea that what we're talking about is empirical base. So necessarily over time, your priors will come to recapitulate or mirror the structure of the world. Uh, there's no way around that because if you minimize prediction error, then you must, setting skepticism aside, then you must be um, you, your internal uh, states the brain must be carrying information about the world. It must be a, a mirroring of the world. So that means that your expectations won't be too far off. So it's a good thing that you are relying on them and that they, your expectations get to uh, color your perception because you can be sure that your expectations are not too far off. So the only, the only um, aspect of cognitive penetrability that we are talking about here is just dealing with uncertainty and if it's so in this perspective cognitive penetrability becomes a kind of paradigm of rationality of course you should rely on your prior learning in situations where you're not quite certain about what to do so in situations where there's uncertainty you don't know if you can trust the sensory input or to what extent you can trust the sensory input so you rely on your priors that seems to be a rational thing to do so in that sense Cognitive penetrability is not a danger; it's a benefit. Mm -hmm. Well, here's here's a sort of a um, a worry in a way, um, or maybe not a worry, but um, a lot of times when people are talking about cognitive penetrability, um, you know, the worry is that you know people have various beliefs or knowledge or what have you, and um, uh, somehow this, you know, people in, who have different background beliefs can't talk to each other, you know, the whole incommensurability, mm. um, you know, issue stemming from, from Kuhn. Um, but this is, this theory is supposed to be about the mind in general. It's, it's not just perception, uh, or at yeah. least that's the way I've understood. It's supposed to be an explanation of of not just what's going on perceptually, but also cognitively. Um, mm. And so how does it extend from the perceptual states, which we can, you know, I mean, I do want to talk about conscious perception and attention and those things, but how, how do you, how does one get exactly from, from the perception and the sensory data and the updating of the hypotheses about what you're going to perceive um, how do you get from that to the the cognitive states, the beliefs, the background knowledge, this all of that stuff that that is the real sort of worry about you know cognitive penetrability, mm. uh, you know cognitive penetrability, um, uh, you know within this within this framework? How do you get those beliefs updated or? affected in some way yeah. within within the constraints of the theory yeah i mean this is a really good question and in the book i very briefly mention uh, conceptual thought the difference between percepts and concepts and so on but I, I don't give or even try to give or have a full treatment of of cognition it's clear that if what i say in the book is correct then there has to be some uh, prediction and minimization, probabilistic story about cognition as well, uh, but I don't give it in the book. 
Um, so in that sense, um, this is left for, for others to, to fill out this particular story, part of the story. I mean, there are, there are accounts out there by Nick Chater and others that, that uh, deal with cognition in probabilistic terms, so try to translate propositional thought, deductive reasoning and so on into base, basically. And I think that is the way it would have to go. So the one comment I have in the, in the, in the book about um, the difference between um, um, perception and, and belief is that from the point of view of the, of the theory, there's no sharp distinction between those mental categories. Um, because as you move up in the cortical hierarchy, uh, the only thing you gain is just a difference in time scale of the, of the representations. Uh, so at lower levels in the in the hierarchy, you have um, representation of causal regularities in the environment that happen over very fast time scales, and then you move up and it goes slower and slower. And you know, in the front of the brain, you then have representation of very stable um, uh, regularities in the world that change over very slow time scales, and that would be where belief is situated. Uh, so belief is just a statistical representation of regularities in the world that uh, change rather slowly. And of course, that's only that can only be the beginning of the story because, of course, I can have a belief about something that moves very fast. And there's lots of different kinds of thorny uh, questions um, to ask about that, that kind of story. But if we start with the prediction and minimization story and if we start with the idea that the brain can only ever operate in probabilities, then that is where we have to end. How to fill out the story, that's a different question that you know I hope Martha I or someone else will, will start working on. Well, speaking of um, beliefs, and um, you do you do discuss um, representation and, and misrepresentation. Um, yep. Although, although in the in the in the perceptual sense of misrepresenting the world, yeah, perceptually, misperception, yeah, right, rather than sort of sort of uh, you know having some false belief or something like that. Um, uh, could you could you say a bit about how you how you uh, your discussion of representation and how that fits into this framework? So, in terms of what misrepresentation is and misperception, yeah, right. Yeah. So here I just rely on a on nice work by Chris Elias Smith and Marius Usher, who sort of developed a broadly Dredskian uh, idea about uh, misrepresentation. And the idea is that you know you you misrepresent um, if you conclude that what you are confronted with, what is the cause of your sensory input, um, is something else than what. Uh, that token is most likely to carry information up over the, over the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a way of, of saying that there is some kind of probability distribution um, that would be in place. Um, and if you pick something else, um, if you conclude something else, then what that probability distribution dictates, then that's a misrepresentation. The other way of doing it is to say that, you know, as I said at the beginning, that you have a you misperceive or misrepresent the world if what you do would increase the predictionary in the long run. Because when you increase predictionary in the long run, then you're moving away from a true representation of the world. 
so that's the kind of story. I'm not sure, you know, they, in the book I sort of try to amalgamate this discussion with some of the discussion that's been about the, you know, rule following and where normativity comes from and so on. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's something going on at the very heart of this theoretical framework that I think probably ch- Change should change our, our sort of fundamental conception of what a misrepresentation is, um, because at heart, you know, the deep dark heart of this theory is um, a very biological account of um, what it means to uh, increase prediction error, namely in terms of our homeostatic um, expectations. Uh, which to a large degree are kind of self-fulfilling prophecies. Uh, so we come in with some hardwired expectations about what our homeostatic state should be. Mm-hmm. And all the work we do uh, in perception, attention, and action, and so on, all that is designed to make those expectations come true, which would maintain us in our expected states in the world. So this is where the the kind of Bayesian idea of perception and so on um, hooks up with what is known as the free energy principle, which I only mentioned in passing in the book, but which is really at the heart of all of this, which is just the idea that we act in the world in order to um, maintain ourselves in our expected states, but we don't know beforehand what our expected states are. Mm-hmm. So we need to um, minimize something else uh, uh, or uh, uh, in order to uh, approximate that, you know, uh, knowledge of that uh, of that set of states, and that's the then the free energy, which is just a sum of prediction errors. So prediction error come pre- in this much more ambitious theoretical setting. Prediction error comes in as a consequence of our of the imperative to maintain ourselves in our expected states. And I I think, and I hadn't thought this through. Uh, fully yet, I think that with that conception, probably we have to adjust the very concept of misperception uh, that we work with. I sort of hinted that in the book, but um, there's no kind of firm answer, I think. Okay. Um, you, you mentioned, um, I think, attention or or consciousness, or at least I would like to ask about that. Um, one of the, you know, towards the beginning of the book, you um, you discuss binocular rivalry and some of the empirical evidence um, for the theory in terms of that that phenomenon. And and then later on, you 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 go into uh, how consciousness and attention uh, are explained and how they are um, interrelated. Um, within the uh, in the theory, um, could you um, say a word a bit about um, how this theory deals with the problem of, or at least part of the problem of consciousness um, and, mm. and attention? Because I do, I know you you do set aside certain aspects. You know the the I think the hard problem as as some people call it. Yeah. So I think. When you read books written, you know, sort of semi-popular books about neuroscience, you know, this or that about the brain, there's lots of those books about, then it's very typical to have the last chapter of those books written by often eminent 
neuroscientists to be about consciousness, solving the hard problem of consciousness. And uh, the, for a philosopher, those last chapters of those books are always somewhat unsatisfactory. <laughs> uh, so I'm, so I'm, I'm doing a little bit in the book to say I'm not going to solve the hard problem of consciousness, so to really give a foundational theory about how subjective experience arises because you know, it's the kind of thing that philosophers uh, worry about and for good reason. Um, but this doesn't mean that there's nothing about consciousness uh, that can be explained. In particular, it's you know, the structure and form of conscious perception and maybe also something about what, what it means for certain representation to be selected for consciousness. All those things, are, I think, we can start to address. And you know, different theories of consciousness have started to re- address those kinds of questions. So what I do in the book is just say, how would we approach those types of questions about the structure and form of consciousness, the selection of representational content for consciousness? How would we approach that if we start out with this theory of how the brain works? And this seems to me to be a very nice way of approaching the problem of consciousness. It's kind of bottom-up approach where we say, here's how we think the brain works. Somewhere within that story, we should find key characteristics of consciousness. And of course, the first step here is to say that that phenomenal consciousness uh, has to be uh, carried by the best top-down predictions, the best performing predictions that we have right now. That has to be what determines uh, conscious perception. Um, And I play around a little bit with the idea that well, presumably some top-down predictions are below the threshold for, for consciousness. Um, presumably there is some kind of um, Bayesian inference that you know doesn't reach the level of consciousness. Um, so the question is, what would it take um, for one of these predictions to, one of these you know, best-performing hypotheses to be uh, to become conscious? And I think one, one good move there is to look at, at action and the notion of active inference that we talked about before. So there's, it might be the case that when a hypothesis is selected for active inference, so selected for testing in action, then it becomes conscious. You know, what happens there in metaphysical terms, I don't know, you know why it becomes, you know, what qualia is and all that, but it seems to be a, a reasonable spot in the brain to have a threshold. Say at some point the brain decides that you now have evidence enough for a particular hypothesis for it to be tested mm-hmm. actively. Uh, so that's one good good place to start. Um, and then what I'm interested in also is a kind of cluster analysis of consciousness where we say that you know, a creature is conscious if there's a first-person perspective, uh, if there's a, a self, if there's bodily awareness and so on. So there's this cluster of descriptions that we normally associate with being a conscious creature. And then I'm trying to refine those properties within the prediction of minimization theory. And I think that quite a lot can be refound within that. For instance, the idea of a, a first-person perspective, which seems a nice fit to this idea that we have a, a perceptual hierarchy where a representation are ordered according to time scales, which gives us a kind of point of view um, ordered temporary um, 
and also I have lots of discussion in the book also about um, bodily self-awareness and how that can change in the light of our perceptual inference and so on. So I think there's there's lots of things to be gained about consciousness uh, from this theory, and I think it's fruitful to start with a, a consciousness neutral theory and then build up to aspects of consciousness from that. Mm-hmm. Well, let me let me. Um press you a little bit to to speculate about um you don't you don't really discuss i mean you have a footnote uh, in which you mention you know thomas nagel um and you know his article of course on on bats or what is it like to be a bat um and you know his his argument there is not so much you know uh sort of towards a hard problem but that we haven't explained given a physicalist explanation of consciousness um, because we, we, we lack the concepts that um, that would link, you know, the sort of the, men, the mental concepts to the physical concept. We just, we don't have a theory that would show us how physicalism could be true. Mm. Um, and so in a sense, I, I take it that the ambitions of this theory is to effectively satisfy that uh, or or address that complaint, you know. I mean, it it ought to, if it is, uh, you know, if it's a satisfactory theory of the fundamental ambitious type that it aims to be, um, mm. then, then it ought to, in some way, address Nagel's concern. So I was just wondering, do you, you know, do you see it doing that? Um, could you? Um, does it? You know, does it make, does it bridge, does it provide us with the concepts that would allow us to show how physicalism could be true? I mean, it's a very hard question, and, and, and I don't have a good answer to what that would be. I think um, one way to describe all of this is in purely functional terms, so so you can just, you, know, you can describe some kind of machine that implements um, a robot even that implements uh, prediction error minimization over the long run, maintains itself in its expected states by uh, implementing approximate Bayesian inference and so on. And it will be an open question whether that machine was conscious or not. Um, and, you know, as long as it's an open question, then... You know, you've somehow fallen short of, of providing a, a full explanation of consciousness. Um, the other way to go, of course, is to kind of appeal to a more old-fashioned identity theory, um, which is, I think, not quite what um, what someone like Nagel would want. But you can say, you know, given that we have such good uh, correlation between what conscious states are and how the brain works, um, which is would be facilitated by this Bayesian perspective. You know, so every time you have a uh, conscious perception of a certain sort, then you can see in the brain and you have the requisite type of top-down uh, neuronal activity that uh, seems to be the winning hypothesis and so on. You can then, you know, by inference to the best explanation, identify the conscious state with that neuronal state. But we also know that 
it's a best controversial uh, to appeal to something like an identity theory in this way by inference to the best explanation. And, you know, I sort of vacillate between, in my mind, between the functionalist approach, which falls short in one way, and the identity theory approach that falls short in another way. Um, so I think there's, I mean, there's more work to be done there. I mean, the main architect of the this theory was Carl Friston, mm-hmm. working at Seal in London, is beginning to speculate about consciousness, um, but I don't think those speculations are yet kind of hitting the philosophical sweet spot. Okay, um, let me let me ask you about um, epistemology a little bit. Um, so at at one point you have a very you you say. Uh, that the neural system, I mean, it's a, as I mentioned before, is a very internalist sort of perspective um, in a number of different ways, and I'm just wondering if it's also internalist epistemologically. So you you note that the, uh, or as you say it, the neural system is, is interested in, um, more interested in suppressing prediction error than in representing the world aright, right? Um so how how do you see this uh, your this theory um, and the way it explains perception um, uh, in terms of how we justify perceptual beliefs or perceptual states? Um, what sort of a you know epistemology does this um, does this imply? Yeah, I mean that is a good question as well, and something that I think quite a few people interested in also because um, these epistemological concerns are kind of the, the canary in the coal mine for um, people interested in embodied cognition and so on. Um, so it's, it's quite an interesting issue to, to think about. And I'm uh, old-fashioned here. I think that this theory uh, is fully internalist. Uh, it can't rule out skepticism because you can have a prediction and minimizing system you know, which is essentially deceived by an evil demon that you know perfectly manages to minimize its prediction error, but thereby, in whatever sense you do in the in this skeptical scenario, misrepresent the world. Um, so I think that there's no way to escape um, those kinds of general skeptical worries. Of course, if you set skepticism aside, which is something that, interestingly, both Elias Smith and Usha do in their writings. They just say, we, you know, we're not going to deal with that issue here. If you set that aside, then then you get a very nice epistemological theory because we've turned things upside down so that uh, your sensory input becomes uh, evidence for your hypothesis in a very direct way. So the more you can explain away, the more evidence you get for your hypothesis. So it's this, what I call self-evidencing uh, from Hempel. Um, this self-evidencing um, character to our hypothesis testing, which is very epistemological. So I think it's it's rather a beautiful theory, setting skepticism aside. Okay, and I, we're, we're close to, to running out of time, but I did want to um, ask about... Um, mental disorders and how this, how you sort of extend this to explaining, uh, in particular, one that you address is uh, autism or autism, autism spectrum yeah. disorder. Could you say a word about, about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So this is this is one of the most exciting developments in in the field at the moment, um, and it's both me, but a number of other people right now are, are um, hypothesizing that prediction and minimization is involved in in autism. So there's a number of papers coming out, and we ourselves in the, in my lab are doing experimental work with with people with autism that's informed by this framework and the idea is that people with autism um, expect the sensory uh, expect the prediction as to be more precise than they should so they haven't optimized their position expectations that we talked about earlier mm-hmm. this means that the Bayesian updating is constantly weighted too much towards the sensory signal and is right they're relying too little on their on their priors uh, and we think in particular that people with autism um, are for that reason slow to recognize when they've entered a new context of uncertainty so as we talked about before you have to constantly update the gain and the prediction error relative to what context you are in and how uh, precise you expect the sensory input of the prediction to be in that context and this means that um, it means that um, you get you know you can explain all these learning difficulties and when you apply it to social interactions as well you can um, you can explain why my people with autism find it hard to mentalize or figure out what other people's mental states are because other people's mental states are deeply hidden causes in the world and you need lots of prior information lots of priors need to be employed in order to extract the signal from other people's uh, behavior um, so it's a really nice way of thinking about a lot of the sensory and social aspects of autism and we, we we've looked at multi-sensory integration uh, in the rubber hand illusion mm-hmm. in People who are low in autistic traits, people who are healthy, people who are high in autistic traits, and then in a clinical sample. And what we find fits quite nicely to this idea that um, there's simply a bias in people with autism towards the lower end of the cortical hierarchy, towards the fast-changing regularities, and less of a tendency to recruit longer-term expectations to explain away sensory input. So this is a really kind of exciting idea. And similarly, people are now trying to look at schizophrenia in, in, in these kinds of terms as well. So let me just, um, we're, we're, we're running out of time at this point. I, um, uh, I'd like to end with asking what your next project is. Do you, do you plan on um, following up this book uh, with, you know, pursuing um, themes that you sort of touch on here or are you turning to something different or what's your next step <laughs> that's a very good question uh, always it's been a you know it's been a long process writing this particular book and there's lots of kind of background knowledge about neuroscience and so on that you need to pick up and then connect it to all the philosophical issues as well as you can uh, right now I'm sort of throwing myself into a lot of experimental work where we're trying to, in particular, look at, at this, these ideas about autism and statistical learning in autism and uh, social aspects of, of, of uh, autism. And then at the same time, I'm looking at, you know, what I call the deep, dark heart of the prediction and minimization story, namely the free energy principle, mm-hmm. which uh, Friston recently has extended in, in incredibly 
kind of dramatic ways um, to explain, you know, things about self-organization, the origin of life, um, all those kinds of things. Uh, so there's this deep connection with biology that I find both perplexing and esoteric, but um, but also fascinating. And you know, if I know myself well enough, I'll, I'm going I'm going to be attracted to this because uh, it's stuff that I don't understand yet. <laughs> well, um, that does sort of uh, end us for today, um, but. Um, it's been great talking to you about about your book, um, you. and um, I wish you luck with with the experiments and and um, look forward to hearing about about those results and what you what you write about those things. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Jakob Hovi, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Monash University. We've been talking about his new book, The Predictive Mind, just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.